Welcome to the Live Curiously podcast by Joyce. I'm Julie Gilhart. People call me a fashion industry veteran. I focus on championing and fostering the power of entrepreneurial creativity within the global fashion industry. From my 18 years as fashion director of Barney's to the consulting I've done in the area of responsible fashion and emerging talent, and now as Chief Development Officer at Tamara Holdings and President of Tamara Projects, I've seen a great deal of talent within the industry. This third season of the Live Curiously, Live Connected podcast, we'll be focusing on designers who care. I will engage in conversation with designers whose unique approaches in fashion and reaction to slow wear and circular economy open up opportunities for customers, buyers, retailers, and other designers to explore ideas of what consciousness means in fashion today and how sustainability is interpreted in the system. Designer Emily Bodie is a true testament to circularity and sustainable production. Care is at the heart of each design. Every concept and subsequent piece originates from a story that is meant to be carried on through the many lives of each Bodie creation or recreation. Emily is paving the way for women-led fashion businesses, especially in menswear, and does so with curiosity, creativity, and connectivity. I spoke with Emily over Zoom, me in the West Village in New York City, and Emily at her fiancé's family home in Victoria, British Columbia, an island in the Pacific Northwest, where the two have been quarantining since shutdown. I'm able to speak with her shortly after finding out she's been nominated for the CFDA's Menswear Designer of the Year Award, an award that's only been received by one other woman in its entire history. We discuss Emily's approach to sustainable fashion and what this lockdown meant to her and her business and why she is so excited to be working with Joyce. Hi, Emily. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Where in the world are you? I'm in Victoria, British Columbia, on an island in the Pacific Northwest right now, (laughs) quite far from New York, but I've been here since March. Wow. How did you end up there? There's not very many fashion people, I think, there. (laughs) I know there are quite a few in Vancouver, but not on this island, really. I came with my fiance. This is his childhood home. So I came probably the second week of March. We closed the store around March 13th for lockdown. And we've kind of just been here ever since working from home, essentially, and, you know, trying to coordinate on a different time zone with the rest of my employees. (laughs) Oh my gosh. What's the tandem difference? It's just three hours, but it really makes a difference because by the time I'm up and on my phone, they're already halfway through their day or a third of the way through their day. Yeah. And there's something about this Zoom culture that we're in that when you get towards the end of the day, you're really fatigued. Yes. Yeah. I definitely have felt that although it's nice to have FaceTime with people, a lot of calls... I have to say, wouldn't ever be on Zoom unless we were in a pandemic. I'm like, can we just do a regular call right now? It's kind of funny. But it is nice to be able to have FaceTime, especially with employees and friends and family. Yeah. I mean, it's the only way that we really can connect. And I, I think we learned that, you know, between lockdown and shelter in place and, um, you know, that 
that you miss seeing people. Yeah. And to, just to have a call is a little awkward now. I actually want to see the person. Oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> I never was like that. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also huge congrats on your nomination for Menswear Designer of the Year from the CFDA, along with Pierre Moss, Tom Brown, and Tom Snyder. I mean, how does that feel to be the only female in that roster? <laughs> I mean, it's such an honor. I had won Emerging Designer of the Year last year, which for me, it would be a couple of years before I'd get nominated to be American Menswear Designer of the Year. But it, it's such a huge honor because I've actually, I've never met Todd Snyder, but I've met everyone else. And, you know, they're huge inspirations. Kirby's a friend and everyone is doing, you know, quite a lot, not just in the world of aesthetics, but in the current climate and industry. Yeah, I think that's my favorite award of all of them. It's a really good mix. But, you know, what's interesting is that you have the most untraditional business model of all of them. Yeah, that that may be true. (laughs) (laughs) I think you actually are probably one of the first people to create this sort of business model. We can talk about that um, because I think that's important. I think more and more importantly, it's not just about the clothes and how they're made, but also who's behind it and what their history is. Where did you go to school? You went to school in New York, right? Yeah, I went to Parsons. So I did the dual degree program. I did a bachelor of fine arts and menswear design and a bachelor's in philosophy. So I had always known that I wanted to have a liberal arts education alongside a fine arts one, not necessarily for a better career outcome per se. You know, I wasn't going to work in the philosophy universe, but I, I've i just always been really passionate about knowing the right questions to ask and how to further your own understanding of the world around you and making interesting decisions based on concepting. And for me, that part of my business is just as important as the clothes itself. You know, the storytelling and the narrative and the inquisitive nature into one's past and the history of others and the cultures that shape, you know, not only our lives, but the lives of the people around us, you know, if it's in New York or America or on a global scale. And you actually kind of built that because you have a community around you too. That's one of the hardest things to build. Um, How would you describe your community? Well, you know, since I was a kid, I've been interested in history, the antiques, something that has a value that's intrinsic to the object itself. You know, I I was always intrigued by this idea that it feels better to inherit something that has a story behind it. And the community that I'm surrounded by and have been for a long time is one of storytellers and, you know, some might call them hoarders, but (laughs) they're really just people that are collectors. And the idea of being a collector and someone who wants to cherish the past is really important. And it's important to acknowledge these people. And I'd say that's probably the best way to describe my community is a community of collectors and people that are interested in preservation. So I work a lot with people who are interested in the preservation of craft. That's everyone from people who are doing hand weaving and using hand looms to people that are quite literally documenting, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, on textiles or on family history images and 
all the ephemera that comes along with that. That's so interesting because I think the J- Joyce's values are creativity, craft, and care. So sounds like you kind of found the most perfect place to have Bodhi. Are you just starting your business in Asia? So when I first launched Bodhi, the first people to buy the collection were a couple of Japanese stores. But more recently, we've been expanding into other parts of Asia, and it's our third biggest market. So it's United States, then Europe, then Asia. But Europe and Asia, it's really close. It's probably the one we're going to be growing the most there in the near future. So it's really wonderful to be in Joyce in a city that really values individuality and craft and kind of lends itself to this idea of being a a melting pot of cultures, you know, similar to New York City. That's really interesting because um, going back to after you graduated from school, did you start your collection just right after school or did you wait a minute and do something else? So I always knew that I wanted to launch my own line and I knew that I I wanted it to be menswear. And there were a couple of ideas that I had around that, you know, maybe vintage inspired, but not necessarily made from antique. And, And when I did my senior thesis and my panel, you know, gave me so much confidence in that I could just launch my own company. But I had been recruited for a couple of bigger organizations and companies the year before I graduated, actually. And it was really tempting to interview and get offers from all of these places. And in the end, I ended up not going with any of them. And I did I did launch Bodhi within two years of graduating. But it took a while. You know, I had been working with someone who was doing their MBA at Berkeley, who was helping me write a business plan because I had no experience in that at all. And that was one aspect of launching a business that I wanted to include, even if it was a draft, just include the process of writing a business plan as part of the launch of Bodhi. So I was taking night classes actually at FIT and working with someone at Berkeley to learn about P&L statements and, you know, what it means to have a good wholesale margin. And, and, and it was really, I don't know, those, those two years were really important. I was working as a stylist. I was working, shooting some stuff myself. Uh, I was a prop stylist and an e-com stylist. I was managing a store. I continued to work retail, you know, since college, I had been working retail for years and continued to work retail until quite literally I didn't have time to make it to work because Bodhi was taking up so much of my time. And so that was really important to have another job until I could really make that leap into doing, you know, my thing full time. And now how many stores do you have now that are yours? Is it just the one in New York or do you have... Yeah, we have one on Hester Street in New York and we're doing by appointment, but, you know, we're, we're waiting out to see when to actually reopen. Yeah. (laughs) You're also building your online business too, like everybody else, I'm sure. Yeah. So that, that's a really interesting part of what we've been working on during the pandemic is when I took a audit of my business right before lockdown, essentially our business was 6% online. So it was really nothing for a business in 
2020. Mm-hmm. 6% is insane. But for me, I had invested so much time and energy, not only into the relationships with all of these wholesale partners, but I had also really wanted to have my own store. That's partly because I grew up working retail and I knew the value of having a brick and mortar and creating a community around that. So we launched the Hester Street store in November. And so we hadn't actually been open for that long, but it took off so quickly and it kind of consumed all of our energy for our growth. And then for our wholesale partners, we have around 120. They're all over the world. And that that was also something I, you know, I wanted to continue to allow those relationships to flourish and have them, you know, help me grow and we help them grow and and tell the narrative uh, in places that we just didn't have, you know, a reach. But we launched, we relaunched our website during the pandemic. So we launched a couple of weeks ago. And now that part of our business has totally overcome our brick and mortar, of course, because we're closed, but it's creeping up. The numbers are getting really close to to the numbers that were direct to consumer right before this. So that's really exciting. So were you part of the Paris Fashion Week digital platform? No, I I didn't participate in Paris Fashion Week. We're not participating right now in showing a collection. For us as a business, we're focusing a lot more on the safety and health of our employees, of course, but also just the current climate. And it didn't feel right to show clothes, although that's, you know, an escape for some people, but quite literally people are dying. And with racial injustice, it felt like our voice and our platform needed to be put towards sharing knowledge and trying to come up with an internal response to how we can better change our community and the world, quite frankly. So that's kind of where we've been putting our energy. But I I do want to show a new collection. Who knows what season it will be? You know, I don't know about spring, summer 21, but we're really excited to show something come fall. And, you know, our stores are ordering our one-of-a-kind products and they're really understanding of the importance of using your voice for for social good. I mean, that's what I feel like so interesting is you have this collection that has a lot of design integrity. It has a lot of craft integrity. And then, you know, it has this uh, real social conscious, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that's yeah. more the unusual than the norm for most fashion. Well, for me, the idea of having this business is so personal and it is a reflection of my personal relationships with other people. So it didn't feel natural or it didn't feel good to put out a collection because of the personal and emotional response people have to our clothes. I, I take that to heart with feeling out um, you know, our current climate and wanting people to invest their energy elsewhere. And so the clothing, of course, you know, it's sustainable and it is clothes that you can feel good about buying. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, there just were bigger things that we could do first, you know, social good. But to talk a little bit about the collection and the collections I've shown in the past, I try to have at least 40% of the overall production of the garments as one-of-a-kind goods. So they're made from antique textiles or dead stock materials. 
a lot of our product, if the fabric itself is not vintage or dead stock, all of the trims and embellishments on them are. So, you know, we do these sweatshirts and jackets that have hundreds of patches from the 1920s through the 1990s. And repurposing is a big aspect of my business. We take primarily domestic textiles and little bits of ephemera and use them to, you know, make menswear that has a uh, a narrative behind it. Additionally, most of our products are actually made in the United States. We're at over 50% right now is made in New York. And the rest of the collection is made in India and Peru. And that's in part because of the investment that those two places have in handcraft and craftsmanship and handwork. You know, we just couldn't produce a similar quality in America for hand embroidery. That industry doesn't exist very much. We do a lot of our samples and custom work of hand embroideries in our studio, but uh, the hand knitters, hand crocheters, and hand embroiderers, as well as weavers, are in India and Peru. And can you, as you grow, can you keep that? Will it scale out? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, like I said, you know, for the one-of-a-kind goods, it doesn't necessarily have to be the entire garment as long as we are utilizing, you know, a percentage of the garment as made from antique. That's what's important to me. You know, if we can get the ribbing or we can get the zippers from a supplier who has 1950 zippers, like that's just so much more interesting and also so much better for our planet. So, you know, I want to continue to scale the one of a kind goods and that aspect of the business might shift a little bit in the coming years. You know, maybe it's a smaller percentage for our wholesalers and a bigger percentage for us, or maybe it's exclusive for each wholesaler each season. You know, I think we just have to be flexible with the way that we sell that product. But, you know, everyone had linen closets filled with domestic textiles. So there are plenty. But for me, what's more important is the preservation of the narrative behind it. And, you know, these embroideries and the investment in in pieces that were made for the home as objects that represented love or comfort or family for me, you know, to reproduce these ideas and these narratives is equally as important in a in a thoughtful, sustainable way. Is your family, you did a show a couple of years ago, I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe it was a year ago, that had to do with the Ringling Brothers. Yes, yeah. That's just so interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think everyone should know the story. Yeah, I know. That's so funny. That was your first show in Paris, right? That was my first show in Paris. You're right. It was exact. It was a year ago. But yeah, we, so we showed that collection last season and that's selling right now, actually. But the the narrative behind the SS20 collection was a family history that growing up, you never know if they're true. You know, you hear your family talking about stories and you're like, mm, I'm not sure if that one's true, but, you know, my grandmother says it all the time or my uncle says it all the time. But this was one that I did a bit of research on and I actually went down to the museum in Sarasota and met with an archivist there. And they were really accommodating and wonderful, showed me all these newspaper articles and photographs that some famous documentary 
photographers took. And essentially the story is that my family had a wagon building workshop in Ohio in the turn of the century, essentially. And they had a wagon building workshop and traditionally did some musical wagons and they had been making wagons for parades. And then (laughs) they got a commission to make circus wagons. And the collection is about how getting a commission like that into a woodworking studio probably changed the entire atmosphere of that studio and their understanding of the world around them. You know, they were doing wagons that were extremely intricate with gold foil of scenes from India and elephants. And and I think for me, it was about imagining the quite magical world that came into their woodshop and how they responded to that being, you know, carpenters or craftspeople. So that's what the collection revolved around. Uh, and, and, you know, the circus has this really beautiful history, you know, it's a controversial history, of course, and there were some really terrible aspects about the circus, but it connected America. You know, they used the the train tracks to go through major cities into little tiny towns. And it was a really cool project to work on, you know, to dive into that history a little bit. It's so interesting that your fiance is a builder too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I would. Yeah. So he has a interior design company called Green River Project and they do a lot of woodworking and <laughs> they have helped me so much, you know, in my business, not only with art direction, even concepting, but, you know, they designed the Bodhi store and all of my shows and all of our furniture collaborations. And we have an ongoing relationship where with our businesses being intertwined in that we do upholstery for a lot of their clients. And, you know, it, it's a really cool melding of you know, of the two worlds. You know, our clients cross over quite a bit before lockdown, we would bring people to our apartments that came from the Bodhi store, but they want to buy a chandelier or a couch. And so we'll bring them over and then they'll go out to visit their studio in Brooklyn. And it's it's really cool. So not knowing when you're going to show, but do you have an idea of the direction of your next collection? I have a couple of ideas. You know, I have been compiling a few narratives for future collections, really. And I don't know, (laughs) I'm not going to speak too much more on that (laughs) because, you know, it has to be a surprise. (laughs) It does. We don't have to know everything. (laughs) You are one of the few female menswear designers. And I know that like you're wearing a Bodhi shirt. I know (laughs) there's lots of things that women can wear, but you label yourself as a menswear designer and you show during Men's Fashion Week and you don't have any real women in your show necessarily, um, although you're very gender inclusive. But so right. how is that? Do you do you feel that? Or is it just something you navigate through and you don't feel like you're one of the only women designers in Paris during that time of Men's Fashion Week or in New York or whatever? Yeah, I I felt it when I first wanted to start a menswear company. And everyone I could ask for advice was a man. (laughs) And that's when I felt it. And, you know, even just having a business and wanting to have 
a life outside of work as well and how to juggle a personal life with growing, you know, your company and being a female founder, you know, that's still hard to find other women to talk to about that. Um, But I, I did feel it. I felt that I was not taken seriously very much, you know, when I first wanted to start a menswear company. There were a lot of instances that people thought they could use as an opportunity to go on a date. (laughs) So that was kind of weird. And that's something that you just grow up with as being a woman, you know, and asking advice from men. (laughs) But, you know, it's a shame, you know, you should be able to ask for advice and not have to go on a date, right? Um, So that's something that is changing a lot now, even in like in the last five years. I launched the business four years ago, uh, you know, this August. And and it's changed the industry has changed so much, uh, of course. And our world has changed so much for the better. But that that was kind of bizarre. And looking back, um, you know, I, I wish there were other women founders in the menswear industry that I could turn to in America. There are women who work in menswear, but they aren't necessarily designers or they're not like the face of a brand or that that was when I really felt it. But but now, you know, there's so there's a few standout incredible women menswear designers in Europe and so I think America we just have to catch up. Yeah. Do you see yourself doing another collection for somebody else on an ongoing basis? Like do you see yourself like Matthew Williams just recently went to Givenchy. Do you see you doing something like that? Yeah, I had been really invested in getting Bodhi off the ground and to be, you know, not only the founder, but also the owner of my own business. That was really important. I didn't want to take an investor and I didn't want to spread myself too thin by taking, you know, outside jobs. But I am totally open to it. There's a couple of companies that I'm hoping to work with or work for in the future that have shaped our understanding of fashion and of American design. And so I think that's not so far away now. You know, it was it was really far away a couple of years ago for me because I, I wanted to have my business be able to stand on its own if I needed to disappear for a month. And that's kind of the silver lining of being in lockdown. Also, you know, all tragedy aside is that we have learned to work in a different way and to keep in touch in a different way, you know, across our company and realize that, okay, you you can take a moment and do something else and still have your business running along smoothly. But, you know, that took four years. I I wouldn't have been able to step away until really recently. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you think you'll stay in New York? Yeah, I think I'll stay. New York is so important to me. I went to school there. My community in New York is my store, my apartment, my office is all like in a three block radius. (laughs) And (laughs) we are looking you know, to have something outside the city as well. But that was always a goal. You know, it's not just because of what's happening, 
but you know, I, I want to have more stores in New York and I want to invest more into New York manufacturing. And we have a studio on East Broadway in the heart of Chinatown. And we took, let's say like one floor is basically manufacturing. It's kind of like a mini little factory. And then the other floors are offices where we do some fulfillment, but primarily press and accounting and and sales. And so, you know, I, I want to invest into the city and try to reinvigorate that idea of quality and domestic manufacturing and and American-made goods. What have you not done in your collection that you want to still do? Well, it's a learning curve. You know, I, I couldn't do knits for a while because that was a whole different can of worms, you know, and... And we started doing knits and that really took off, especially this past season for fall. We did a lot more knitwear and merino wool knitwear. And that's in part because of Walmart Prize. We were able to really invest in that process. And we launched shoes this past season. But I think the accessories world is really intriguing. You know, I want to I want to be able to do more shoes and more bags and venture into projects like eyewear and, you know, but I'm not rushing into anything like this because, you know, I really want to make sure we have a solid footing. And this pandemic has showed us that it's the straw that broke the camel's back in a lot of ways for a lot of businesses. And to be able to survive this is a huge feat. And so I want to make sure we can get to the other side and then think about what other projects would be really exciting for our team and for our our partners from the wholesale side. Have you been to Hong Kong? I haven't. I have not been. I haven't spent that much time in Asia at all, actually. I go to India once a year, not this year, of course, but I have not been. Yeah, that should be really fun. I know. Yeah. We were supposed to do something. Um, you know, I wanted to tour all of our stores uh, in the spring, but of course, <laughs> that got entirely pushed. It's so interesting because Joyce has always been like the store. You know, right. like you were a brand and you were in Joyce. To me, it, even growing up in Barney's, you know, I always thought that it was like this just amazing sort of really elegant place in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. I, I've actually been to Hong Kong, but just super briefly, you know, yeah. so short. I You didn't get to go to any stores. <laughs> well, I actually did, but it was only just for a really brief moment. So I didn't feel like I settled into Hong Kong. I, I felt like it was one of those cities that has a lot of intricacies, mm-hmm. you know, and that just to be there for a while, you just find out so much more. It's not what it seems on the surface. Right. Um, but some of my favorite people live in Hong Kong. So once we get off this crazy travel ban, I think we'll want to go around the world five times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when are you getting married? Oh, gosh. No idea anymore. <laughs> you know, we, we're saying next summer. Yeah. But it's really hard to plan because I'm American and Aaron is Indo-Canadian. We originally wanted to do our wedding in India, and then now it became Canada. And now we have no idea because if the borders are still closed, then, you know, my family wouldn't be able to join us. So I think, you know, we're just waiting it out and hopefully July of next year. So tell me about this shirt that you're wearing. Is that (laughs) vintage 
or did you piece it together or how does that work? Yeah. So this is, it's not vintage, but it is uh, inspired from a textile from a tablecloth, actually from the 1940s, 1950s. And these tablecloths I use a lot for inspiration. They were made as souvenir tablecloths for people traveling and for soldiers stationed abroad to bring back to their families uh, in mid-century. So we make this in India. And what's incredible about the work that they do on these like sheer organzas is you can't tell the difference between the vintage and the reproduction. Mm-hmm. So we we put it on the tag, you know, that this one is a reproduction, you know, uh, which is is really cool because it has, you know, the same amount of handwork going into this piece. And a lot of times that quality is lost with manufacturing. And so, yeah, but I, I wear this shirt all the time. I, like you said, you know, it's, we're a menswear brand, but we sell to, you know, half of our clients are women and they're not just buying, you know, for their husbands and boyfriends and brothers and friends, but also for themselves. So it's it's boxy clothing and you know something like this shirt is sheer it it caters to you know both men and women which is going to make it great for hong kong you know yeah i remember hong kong being super humid all the time yeah yeah <laughs> so that's really good so what's your plan for the fall are you i know we're on lockdown but do you have anything coming out that you're any collaborations or anything like that Yeah. um, So for the fall, I'm really excited to... So we built a website that it was designed by Aaron and Eric Wren, who was the art director for Art Forum magazine. And the website was intended to feel as personal as our store. So for the fall, I want to continue to invest in our website as a space. So if you see you know, I'm taking pictures of the collection on our hanger and and on the wall of a greenhouse and making it feel like really much like this space. So in the fall, I'm excited to look at how we can work on our own websites and with our retail partners on how to create spaces for our product online. And what does that look like when we had all these plans to do shop and shops for our stores or, you know, little projects to make the racks look better, have a piece of Green River Project furniture. And and if we can no longer do that, or if we can't do that to the extent that we were planning on doing it this coming year, what does it look like to make images and to make product and the places for the product in, in a different way? You know, the word sustainable is just something that everybody uses. I mean, I, I like to follow Avon Chouinard and talk about responsible, but mm-hmm. that means something different to people than sustainable does. So you're always kind of seesawing between those two words. But in terms of sustainability, you upcycle a lot of materials. What are some of the other things that you do in your yeah. collection? Yeah. So like I said, 40% of the business is made from antique textiles, but we also work with historic factories and mills and family-owned factories and mills in America. So we work with a trouser factory from the 1920s that's family-owned and operated. We work with a wool mill in Scotland that's family-owned and operated. We also invest in female-owned and run factories in India and Peru. A lot of these 
places are communities of female artisans that have an interest in rural social entrepreneurship. So that's another aspect of the business that is not just the repurposing, it is sustainable and it has a social good component. Which the two, I think, are really important. Yeah, it's important for scaling, especially, you know, because, you know, it's not just scaling with antique or dead stock, but it's scaling with from the manufacturing processes and from the perspective of growing, growing your business with a thoughtful approach along the entire supply chain. Will you ever take back your body clothes and reuse them again? Oh, like Eileen Fisher, Patagonia. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in preserving people's clothes. So I tailor and mend a lot of my clothes and we offer that to our clients. So people will come back for tailoring and mending, you know, not just like I lost all my buttons, but you know, I ripped a hole in my shirt at my friend's wedding, you know, (laughs) we get, or like there's a cigarette mark or something. So yeah, we do, we do so much mending on not just the one of a kind antique pieces, but of, you know, all sorts of clothing that we sell. And, you know, people come to us for their personal collections. I get at least one person a week asking, how do I wash this quilt? Or (laughs) how do I, take care of this textile. But that's part of the circular aspect in investment of our business is that, you know, you buy these trousers, but you can come back when you lose weight, when you gain weight, you know, maybe when the style or your interest in, you know, having the hem length of your trousers change based on a style or something or the shoes you're wearing. And that's something that we're committed to with our clients is, allowing them to really feel like we have their back when they invest in a piece from our collection and that we want their wardrobe to grow with them over the course of their life and for them to be able to pass it on and and knowing what aspects are really important even from the beginning of making clothes, you know, leaving room in the back of your trousers so that you can tailor them in or out if we can, leaving quite a bit at the hem so that you can take them down or up. And so those projects are always really fun to be a part of. We let out a pair of pants three weeks ago that were you know, it was over six inches too small. So we had to do this whole like Jenga, like taking a panel and putting it at the side seam and at the back seam. And, you know, your body changes or you might fall in love with a pair of pants that's too small. And so we need to make it six inches bigger. And and that's really important. And yeah, that's part of the circular... Um, aspect of the brand that that's not just made from, you know, dead stock materials. One of the Joyce's ethos is curiosity. So how do you live curiously? Oh gosh. Well, for myself, it is so much about learning, you know, not just about my own culture, but about other people's cultures and, and all of the histories and narratives around why people did something, why they collected this, how early understandings of, you know, the domestic space and your aesthetics shape your life. You know, I think that's what I'm most curious about and how you can feel connected to someone through conversation or through an object. The emotional relationship that we can have to objects is really interesting to me. And 
you know, and how we attach value to things and how we attach value to things because we have a memory about them that links to our family's traditions or culture or how our house was decorated. You know, these are all things that I am curious about. (laughs) And then if you were to describe how do you stay connected, what does that mean for you? How do I stay connected? I stay connected through sharing stories, I would say. You know, I love hearing why people identify with certain understandings of their selves, but also of their family. I I think it's, yeah, it's staying connected in that way. You know, I love when people shoot me an email or I have a phone call with someone who has recently found out about some aspect of their family history that they're really excited about. And they know that someone at Bodie might be too, you know, or that I might be. And and it is really exciting. And I love that people get amped about these narratives. And I think that's one way to stay connected is through story. Yeah, for sure. I think that there's so many stories in that haven't really been told. Yeah. You know, one of the things that someone said to me so wisely one time was that the purpose of fashion is to create beauty. Mm-hmm. And so I think you can create, but I think you can also tell beautiful stories. Right. And um, I think we need to, I don't know, it, it would be nice. I, I, I think what you're doing is so amazing and it's so different and it's so unique and it's you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, as a, as a former fashion director at Barney's and a big fan of Joyce and just being in fashion my whole life, it's more important now than ever you know, the stories and how things are made and where they're made and who makes them and who they're being made for and the inclusivity of everything. I think, even though it's a really hard time for a lot of people right now, I think there is a hope for a good future, a better future in fashion. Yes, I agree. Anyways, come home. I know. <laughs> I will. I'll be there in, in a couple weeks. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll throw a parade yeah. <laughs> outside with masks. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so it much. It was so nice talking to you, Julie. <laughs> you Thank you. Emily continues to share stories through her collections. She is a force in the responsible fashion arena and has built her brand on ideals that cater to ethical fashion. We heard about her close relationships with her entire supply chain, from producers and manufacturers to the clients who wear the clothing. She emphasizes the importance of learning about cultures that are not your own, trying to understand narratives of others and why certain things carry memories and values for people and what that means for how they live their daily lives. Storytelling, craft, and care are at the heart of Bodhi. Emily stays connected by sharing the stories she's learned, not just of her own past, but also centuries of narratives that transcend cultural barriers. Thank you for listening to Live Curiously. Live Connected by Joyce.